Heavenly Father, we do come in the name of Jesus this morning, Lord, asking for grace, Lord, to hear, receive Your Word. Lord, we pray, um, make Your truth effective in our hearts and lives. Use it to change us. Lord, there's not a person in this room that doesn't need the sanctifying power of Your truth. So Lord, I ask You to enable me to deliver the message You would have delivered here and enable all of us to hear what You are saying. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Amen. Interesting passage indeed uh, this morning. And I want to start by reminding us of what is going to be a key verse here in the book of John. Um, there are probably several you could point out. You know, this is a key verse in the book of John. But, but um, this one in particular, uh, John giving us his reason for writing, is in chapter 20. Verse 30 and 31. So I want to read that as well this morning and uh, just so that we have that fresh on our minds as we consider what, uh, what John is doing here in chapter 2. So chapter 20, verse 30, the Apostle John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Now, that's John's primary purpose behind everything we're going to read in this Gospel account. And we already covered uh, chapter 1. We went through the prologue and we went through um, John's account of the ministry of John the Baptist. And we saw that also in the case of John the Baptist, that of course was the purpose in his ministry why he came doing what he was doing, why he was preaching repentance to Israel. Uh, it's for the same purpose, that Jesus might be manifest as the Son of God, the Christ. In other words, so that it might be revealed to the nation of Israel that this is the Christ, the Son of God. So that's why John the Baptist um, did what he did. That's why John the Apostle is writing to us here. That's why the Holy Spirit has given us this book, this gospel account, so that we may uh, know that Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, and so that believing on Him, we may have life in His name, or so that we may have life through faith in Him. Now, that may seem a little unrelated to this story. It's easy to read John chapter 2, the first 12 verses here, first 11 verses, it's easy to read through it just as a story and say, wow, what an, what an uh, awesome miracle. You know, I mean, it's like Jesus just did, a, just did a, a miracle just to kind of wow everybody with His power. But not exactly the case. We'll talk about that a little more as we go through here. And that same purpose is behind it. It is to make Jesus' glory known. Um, remember, and I'll probably be referring back to this too. Remember in, in John 1, when, when uh, John tells us who Jesus is, He's, of course, the eternal 
Son of God, the incarnate Word. Verse 1, He was in the beginning with God. He was God. And then verse 14, He became flesh. That is the Word, which is again referring to Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. So John says there's a unique glory about Him. He's the eternal Word of God who became flesh and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. So it's, it's not just uh, any glory, whatever ways we might think of that term, but it is glory that is unique to Him. Glory as of the only Son of the Father. And then John describes His glory this way, again in verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14, full of grace and truth. So, we need to have that kind of on our minds too as we, as we walk through the Gospel and kind of visualize this description of Jesus' ministry that John is giving us as he goes um, sign by sign and, and then teaching by teaching, account by account, to show us, to make Jesus known to us as the Son of God. We can have this uh, 114 in our minds that what He's doing here is showing us how Jesus' glory is seen. John says, we've seen His glory. And then he gives the Gospel account so that you and I might see His glory too, with the intentions that we might believe. Now let's go back to chapter 2, verse 1 here. <clears throat> he gives us, um, and I'm not going to walk all the way through it, but starting back in chapter 1, he gives us, uh, a, a day-by-day account here of, of about a, a period of about a week. And the, the, the gospel writers don't always do this. Sometimes they're, they're, um, the events they record are not even chronologically recorded uh, some, because they're thematic. You know, they, they're, they're trying to get across a certain uh, point, certain theme, and so they, they pick events that fit that. But... Here in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he kind of walks us through a, a particular week here, and that's why the, the reference here on the third day. The third day, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So here you have a, a, a common wedding feast, and these things would last sometimes for days. Uh, it's not, not uh, really like what we're used to, where it might last 30 minutes or it might last an hour. And with the reception and everything, you know, may, uh, maybe you've got a couple hours. But these things would go on for days. And it's probably um, either a close friend or, friend or a relative of Jesus because you've got Jesus' mother here and he and all of his disciples are invited, the twelve, uh, or at least as many of them as there are at this point. And then they have a dilemma. And that's where we're going to start this morning. They, they have a dilemma at the wedding feast. They run out of wine. Well, that's an important part of the wedding celebration. It was in their day. And um, it was the, the, the job of the, the bridegroom to make sure that you know, the, the feast was supplied well. So in a... In a uh, Shame culture, um, this, this, this is not a small thing. 
You know, you run out of wine at the wedding feast. That's that doesn't look good for the groom and his family. Okay, so it, so it's 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 an important thing. It's a, it's a, a dilemma. Um, and so Mary, we don't know why. It may be that she she uh, she has some part in providing here. Maybe she played some role in the catering. You know, we we don't know. But Mary um, points this out to Jesus. So again, in verse uh, three. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, that is, she's saying to Jesus, and by the way, I love, um, we don't see this in English, but many of these verbs that we're going to be reading through here are in the present tense, or what's called the historical present. So they actually take a past event and put it in the present tense. So what it says literally is, she says to him. Or you could translate it, she is saying to him. So it kind of, it kind of puts you in the middle of it like you're there. You, you hear her saying to him. It implies continuous uh, or repetitive action. So she is saying to him, John says, they have no wine. So here you've got a dilemma, a wedding feast. They run out of wine and Mary more or less intercedes. You know, she's, well, well we've got to do something about this and... And, uh, and honestly, I, I don't think she's expecting a miracle here. I, I, don't, I don't buy into the accounts of, uh, uh, you know, the young Jesus doing miracles. You know, John tells us this is the first one. Um, there are stories out there, but, but it, that's what they are, stories, okay, <laughs> about him doing miracles as a child. John tells us this is the first one. I, I don't think Mary's expecting a miracle. This is just her son, and she's probably, uh, probably a widow at this point. And she probably relies on Jesus as the eldest son for help, and uh, uh, you know, and, and just to be resourceful in in, uh, in problem areas. And so she she turns to him, looking for help here. Um, she says, you know, it's obvious they've run out of wine. And so she says, they have no wine. And Jesus responds and says to her, and it's kind of this has puzzled a lot of people, myself included. He says to her, um, woman, what does this have to do with me? That's an interesting reply. <laughs> I, I mean, it sound, it even, for one thing, it sounds a little disrespectful, talking to his mother. And for another thing, um, it almost gives the impression that, he doesn't, that he's not concerned. You know, what, what, what does this have to do with me? Or what do you have to do with me? Well, the wording is is a, a little uh, a little difficult here. Uh, in other words, it's 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 not typically a ter- when he says woman, the, the term that he uses there is not typically a term of endearment. Um, uh, incidentally, unlike the uh, NIV translation there, that uh, kind of smooths it over, <laughs> kind of smooths it over, and uh, it it is a little bit of a reproach. Um, but he's not being disrespectful. There's something going on here. There's something taking place here that I think even in his actions and in his words he's beginning to uh, allude to. So it is a bit of a reproach. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus, as he so often does, sounds like He's not even talking about the same thing that the person who addressed him is talking about. 
In other words, he, he tends to have whatever's going on in the, at the moment in view, but then also greater things in view. So he says, My hour has not yet come. His mother says to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now let me, let me just give you a little bit of interpretation here, and I think this makes sense, especially... Uh, in light of other scriptures that that we have, um, you know, that we can turn to for helpful interpretation here. It does seem that Jesus, as a mother, as mothers do, as any mother would, or Mary rather, as a mother, and as any mothers do, is saying, look, um, they're out of wine. Um, Can you do something? And Jesus seems to respond to her and what again seems to us in somewhat of a cold manner. But this is the beginning of his public ministry. And there's a little bit of a change going on in relationship here, even as he relates to her. You know, there's other instances, for example, where they come and say, Jesus, your your mother and your brothers are looking for you and Jesus says These are my mother and my brethren right here. Those who do the will of my Father. That sounds almost a little callous too, doesn't it? But I think what he's doing is saying, here's here's the reality. My mother and my brothers in the flesh, you know, it would be his half-brothers in actuality. My mother and my brothers must come to me in the same way that everybody else does. They must come to me as, as Lord, as Messiah. They must believe on me in the same way that everybody else does. So, it sounds a little difficult, but again, I think that's because of what's taking place here, this transition. This is going to be His first miracle, first sign is the word that John uses here. It's a better term. First sign and the beginning of his public ministry. So, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And by the way, even though she doesn't seem to respond to him here, um, she persists uh, in her trust that he can do something. And it, it puts you in mind a little bit of, of a, like I said, she has to come the same way we do. And it puts you in mind a, a little bit of the, the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus making requests for healing for her child. And, you know, he tells her she's a Gentile. He tells her, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she persists. She persists. When Jesus says, you know, it's not, it's not good to give the children's meat to dogs. In other words, you don't take what is for the house of Israel and give it to the Gentiles. And the Syrophoenician woman says, yes, but even the dogs eat from crumbs, eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And Jesus marvels at her fate and grants her request. Well, there's almost a hint of that here. A, a kind of mild reproach to Mary, and yet she persists with her trust in Him. And says to the servants, and again, I think not having a clue that he's going to do a miracle, but um, just knowing that, he's, he, that he can do something, <laughs> right? 
And she gives some great advice, by the way, to these servants. Do whatever He tells you. Do whatever He tells you. It's hard to improve on that advice. When, whatever Jesus says, do it. Do it. Now, verse 6 says, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. In other words, they were used in ceremonial um, cleansing. Probably washing their hands before they ate. And, and um, they didn't do that for the same reason that you and I do to kill microorganisms. It was, a, it was just a ceremonial rite for them. Um, so, representing cleansing. Uh, not, of the, not of the flesh, but of the soul. So they had six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. A lot of water. Probably a big crowd. It's a big wedding celebration. And I think this is important that John points out that these are there for the Jewish rites of purification or for purification according to their custom. And Jesus said to the servants in verse 7, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. So, so John just kind of subtly slips that in there. What Jesus did was turn water into wine. John says, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now let me stop right there for just a moment. Mary says to the servants, do whatever He tells you. So Jesus, seeing these stone pots there, each one of them holding 20 or 30 gallons of water, instructs the servants to fill the jars with water. And John is very specific here. He says they filled them up to the brim. So you've got these big, huge jars, 20 or 30 gallons, full to the brim now of water. Now verse 8 he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, not to be confusing here, but I want to give you a couple different views on verse 8. The term for draw here uh, is always used for drawing water from a well. So I'm going to give you a couple, uh, there, there are a couple different views on what is going on here. One is this. Jesus told them to fill the stone water pots with water, which they did. Fill them to the brim, John says. And then he says, now, draw more water. And what some uh, commentators think, some interpreters think, some scholars think, is that they go to a well, the well where they're getting the water from originally, and they draw more water. And what Jesus has done is turn that water into wine, and that's what they present before um, the head, what we call the head waiter. Again, verse 8. He said to them, Now draw some out, not out of the water jars, but in other words, go back and draw some more from the well. Draw some out. 
where they had just drawn it to, in order to fill the water jars, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. Um, then again it says in verse 9 here, uh, the servants, they knew what had happened there. The servants who had drawn the water knew. So that's one possibility. You've got six full stone water pots full to the brim of water that remain there. And then they go where they got the water to fill those water stones. They, they go and draw more water, which the language seems to imply in the Greek there. And that water is made into wine. The other possibility, of course, is that they filled the water jars with water and Jesus turned that water into wine. And so when he says draw some out in verse 8, he, he, by this interpretation it would be simply draw some out of the water jars, the water pots that have just been filled. Um, there are reasons and I, that there are these different interpretations. Uh, I mean, in other words, you can, you, can, you can just draw out of each one different um, meanings here. But the main point is this. <clears throat> Jesus turned water into wine. It doesn't matter if it's the water in the water pots or if it's the fresh water out of the well that they are now drawing. Jesus turned water into wine. Okay? And so they take that water, whichever place it came from, they take that water to the master of the feast, and he didn't know where it came from. All he knows is this is good wine. <laughs> this is the good stuff. It's the expensive stuff is what he's thinking. This is the stuff that normally they, they put out first and everybody is impressed by. You know, people come out and they drink. And, and, and let's just be frank here. I mean, this is what he's talking about. People come out and, and drink and they, oh, this is good high dollar wine. And they're impressed by it. And then after they've had a little bit to drink and they begin to get a little bit inebriated, then the head waiter can tell the servants, start bringing out the cheap stuff. You know, we'll, we'll st save some money here. And, and uh, you know, impressing, impressing them, at the, the, the crowd at that point is much easier when they begin to get a little too much wine. Okay? So this is what... This, the the uh, master of the feast is talking about, and this is why he's surprised. And so he says to them, verse 10, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. He's, he's surprised. He's, he's shocked. Now, he doesn't know what's going on. And the reason John's telling us, telling his readers, is um, number one, it, it, it's just you know the, the brute fact that Jesus did a sign here. He turned water into wine. And number two, he makes in doing that makes the point of talking about its superiority. This is good wine that Jesus made. I mean, it, it, you know. The guy's just taken back by the quality of it. Now, what does all this have to do 
with manifesting Jesus' glory or what we just read about over in John 20, 30, and 31. I've, I've, I've written these things so that you might know that He's the Christ, that He's the Son of God, and so that believing in Him you may have eternal life. Well, part of it at least is, at least is, is more than obvious. In other words, what, what John is doing here is giving us an account of Jesus doing a miraculous sign that a mere man cannot do. That much is just obvious, isn't it? I mean, you can see. You say, well, Jesus turned water into wine. Okay, so that's a, that's a sign. And by the way, I, I, this word sign is one that John favors as opposed to um, wonder or miracle. Um, and it's because signs point to something beyond themselves. They, in and of themselves, are significant because they point to something, some reality um, that, that you know you want to be made known. You see a sign on the road. There's, there's a sign when you're going westbound on interstate that's flashing. You know that there's construction ahead. It's signifying a reality that lies ahead on the road. So John is recording for us specific signs or seven, or eight rather, in the, in the Gospel of John, that John has chosen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to accomplish what he said he wanted to accomplish in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. That is, convince us that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. Alright, so first of all, it's obvious that one reason John tells us the story is just because of the simple fact that turning water into wine is not something that just anybody can do. It requires some power. But also, we have to take John's word, sign, seriously. Verse 11. This, the first of signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. So, it's, it's not just a, a wonder. It's not just a display of power. You know, to, to, to wow the crowd so that everybody go, or at least the ones who knew about it would say, wow, you know, that's amazing. No, it's to, it's to point to something, to signify something. It's a sign. Well, again, one thing it, it is obviously to point to is the deity of Christ, that, that He is the Christ, the Son of God. But I think it's more than that. Because we, we have these running themes in John of what the coming of Christ means and, and specifically the superiority of Christ and the kingdom of God. So, for example, in the next chapter, we're going to see the new birth, regen, what we call regeneration, being born of the Spirit into the kingdom of God is set over against physical birth, for example. I mean, Nicodemus understands being born the first time. He doesn't understand the second birth, the new birth that Jesus refers to. And that is a greater 
and superior reality that Jesus comes preaching and talking about. In John chapter 4, you get the living water that Jesus provides contrasted with the water of Jacob's well. So, you've got this running theme of the superiority of Jesus. Sometimes in the form of the new against the old, or at least the spiritual as opposed to what we know of as the temporal and fleshly. So I think all of that is already in view here. So let's go back briefly in verse 6. And I said a moment ago, I think it's important that John tells us that these water pots are for the Jewish rites of purification. That is, it was their custom that they had to do these ceremonial cleansings, washings. And that was a way of being clean before God. Now, it's not that it actually accomplished that, but in some of their minds it did. I mean, they were, they were deceived in thinking so. There's a sense in which those things are signs in and of themselves. You know, all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament and all of the ceremonialism point to something greater, something superior. So these water pots are for ceremonial cleansing. And Jesus tells the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So now, wherever the wine comes from, if it comes from the pots or if it comes from the well, there, there may be a hint here of the Old Testament ceremonialism having to be fulfilled. They're full to the brim, this, this water for cleansing. And these things had to be fulfilled before the new, the better, the superior could come. And so they filled them to the brim, and then Jesus says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And of course, we know it's something new. It's something different. It's something superior. It's not, even, it's not only superior to the water, it's superior to whatever wine they started out this party with so that the master of the feast is just taken back by it. You saved the good wine until now. That's an important point too. The best reserved for last. And so it may be that what is being pictured here and again, whether or not this is the case, and I'm offering this as an interpretation, it's not something I can uh, you know, uh, prove to you um, beyond any doubt, but whether or not that is precisely the case here, we're going to see this teaching as we move through the Gospel. Jesus is definitely coming, talking about something superior, something that replaces 
the old. For example, again, with his discussion with the woman at the well, he says, you know, you, you, uh, you say you worship in this mountain and the Jews say you worship at Jerusalem. I'm telling you, the hour is coming and now is when you'll neither worship in this mountain or in Jerusalem. But those who worship God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So there's something new, there's something superior, there's something better replacing what they've already known. Now that's one interpretation. Now let me give you another one. It's just kind of my own take on it. Just, just, um, just a, uh, at, at, you know, hitting at the heart of the, the miracle, the sign, what Jesus does here. Because I think this is significant as well. There's a difference in any of you, if you've ever drank water in your life, and if you've ever drank, drank or drunk, I never do know what the past, correct past answer that is, but if you've ever had water in your life or if you've ever had wine in your life, you know there's a difference. You could take water and um, dump Kool-Aid in it, mix it around, and you've got something different now, but, but it's... It's not essentially different. I mean, basically what you've got is colored water. Sugar water. Hummingbird feed. I mean, basically is what it is. <clears throat> but wine is a different substance. And I think that may be important here as well. In other words, the miracle that Jesus does, this first of signs, is one in which He actually changes the nature of something. The old is made new. It's radically different. It's radically new. This is not just sugar water. It's not just colored water. It's a new substance. It's wine instead of water. I think that's going to be important as well, especially when we get into chapter 3, when Jesus actually starts talking about regeneration. And I think that's where John's mind is going already. So now, Jesus has changed water into wine. The master of the feast is impressed. The servants, probably shocked. They know what, where the water came from, so they know what's going on here. And then, verse 11, John tells us this. This is the first of His signs. And this is the first one that John records in this Gospel. The first of His signs. That is something that signifies something else. Something that points to something beyond itself. Something, a reality. In this case, a better reality. A new reality. A superior reality. And John says, again, this is the first of His signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. In other words, John is saying, in this sign, in the fact that He changed water to wine, His glory was seen. Now, it wasn't seen by everybody. John doesn't seem to indicate that. He doesn't tell us if the Servants understood or not, they probably didn't. They probably didn't see. They saw what happened. They knew the water turned to wine, but they didn't see probably the glory of Christ. But the disciples did. 
And so verse 11 finishes out this way, and His disciples believed in Him. Now, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, why did John say that he's recording these things? So that we might know, right, that He's the Christ, the Son of God, and so that believing in Him we might have life. And I think what Jesus has done here is say, there's something superior to your ceremonialism. Your purification water. All of the the rituals that you go through. Thinking that you are drawing close to God. Thinking that you are cleansing yourself before God. Jesus is saying, there's something superior. There's the new wine of the kingdom of God. And life in the kingdom is superior to any other way of living. That's why John says, I want you to know that He's the Christ, the Son of God, so that believing in Him, you may have life. That is, so that, in a manner of speaking, you may taste of the wine of Jesus. So that you may drink like the Master of the Feast and say, that's superior. That's superior to anything I've had. That's good stuff. And the chronology is even hinted at here. The Master of the Feast says, most people bring the good stuff out first, but you've saved it until now. That is, you saved the best till the last. Well, listen, for the Jews, the ceremonialism, all of the ritualism of the Old Testament had its place. It was God-ordained. But there was something better coming. Something better on the way. That all of that, the effect it was supposed to have was to cause them to look forward to this greater reality. This superior way. So I guess what Jesus is saying. There's something superior to what you're experiencing now. There's something that doesn't just cleanse the flesh. There's something that fulfills the soul. That satisfies. There's something that if you taste of it in in truth, I mean, if you really get a taste of it, you will understand it's far superior. It's better. Two things real quick by way of application and we'll be done here. I was thinking about this and thinking about this, this uh, concept of you know, Jesus coming in His ministry and His preaching of the kingdom replacing what the Jews had known up to this point. The Mosaic Law, for example, and all of the Levitical system, the Old Testament worship, and Him coming as the real temple, you know, the superior temple, of God. The genuine one. Him coming as the true way. Him coming as the real sacrifice for sins. All of these things. And and I just, you know, I begin to think about other applications there. What about us? What about those of us who don't have a Jewish background? 
So I want to make a quick application here as well because I think it still holds true. In other words, whatever, whatever the old is for you and me, this is still applicable because Jesus has a superior way. Right? So it doesn't matter if you were raised uh, in, in, under the Old Covenant, living under the, the, the Mosaic Law, or if you were raised up in church and yet you don't, you don't really know Christ, or if you were just completely pagan. I mean, you didn't, you didn't know anything about church or Judaism or anything else. In other words, the old is just simply living for self in whatever way that manifests. For the Jews, you know, they, they, they misunderstood and they took God's law and perverted it into a, a, a way of earning favor with God, which is not what it was at all, not what it was ever intended to be. It was intended to point to Christ. On the other hand, the pagans out there didn't have any connection with Judaism. Their self-centeredness and selfishness manifested in all kinds of ungodly practices and, and idolatry. You see that in Acts 17 when Paul goes into Athens and they've got, they've got idols everywhere and Paul stands up and says, I perceive that you are very religious. <laughs> You're very religious people. And they're worshiping, but they're worshiping in ignorance. That, that's their old experience. It didn't have anything to do with the Mosaic Law. But it was still all wrapped up in self, and it was still anti-truth and anti-God. And so Paul told them, the God, the God that you worship in ignorance, that is, you know, what he was saying was, you, you've got this monument to the unknown God that you say you worship, and you admit that you don't know Him. You know, you worship Him in ignorance, which really means they weren't worshiping Him at all. Paul said, I'm going, to, I'm going to declare this God to you. Why? Because he said, these times of ignorance, these times of not knowing, God kind of winked at, but now, Paul says, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. So it seems to me Paul's doing the same thing Jesus is doing here. Jesus telling the Jews, the old is over, it's done, it's complete, it's fulfilled. There's a superior way. And Paul was saying the same thing to the pagans. Your, your worship in ignorance, it's time for that to end because now God commands all people everywhere to repent. And if you were like me, raised up in church, we, we've got, there's a, a third dilemma. I mean, we, we, we've got a different kind of old. We, we grow up hearing the truth, hearing the right things, but, but sort of like the Jews under the Old Covenant, we, we take God's message, God's Word of grace, God's revelation, and we twist it into something of our own design, some kind of works-based method of gaining favor with God. And so, you know, the, the Jews would do the sacrifices and think they were earning brownie points with God. And we do things like, you know, come to church, go to a Bible study, pray, whatever it is. Things we've been taught, 
And we think that by them we gain favor with God. And so this speaks to us as well. That's the old. That's, that's the water that we suppose cleansed us somehow. <clears throat> and Jesus is saying, the superior way is here. Oh yeah, there, there's a way. In fact, there are many ways. There's a way that seems right to a man and the end is destruction, death. So Jesus is saying, there's, there's a superior way. There's a way of life. And that's what John is saying. I've written these things so that you may know that He's the Christ, the Son of God. And so that believing in Him, you may have life. So what happened with the disciples. The first disc, the first of signs Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. So John is laying it out for us here. Here's the thing. Here's the question for us. The glory of Christ is being manifest right before our eyes and right through our ears. Do you see it? Do you understand that He's the Christ? The Son of God. The unique One. The only begotten Son of the Father who came and made His glory known. Are you believing in Him? It's not just, eh, do you give Him some kind of a scent? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's probably, he's probably crying. He's probably something. Are you believing in Him? so that you may have life. Would you stand? The wine, the wine of the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, that is believing in Him, knowing Him, loving Him, the wine of the true knowledge of Jesus Christ is far superior, far superior to any other way of life. Let's pray. Father, we do love You. Thank You for Your Word. and Lord, we thank You for revealing Yourself, making Your glory known. And I pray, Lord, for every individual in this room today. Take away the blind spots, Father. Open eyes to see. Open ears to hear. Change hearts. If there's a single person or any number of persons in this room who does not see You for who You are, see Your glory, who does not truly believe on You, who does not have life in You, then we pray to change their hearts today. Make them new. Just like You did when You changed water into wine. Make them a new creation, Father, we pray for their salvation, 
for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name.